Hello, my name is Andrew Howard, and welcome to another episode of the Ohio University Press Podcast. Today we sit down with author Frank Lavin to discuss his new book, Homefront to Battlefront, Ohio Teenager in World War II. Frank, thanks for joining us today. Andrew, thanks for having me on. First, I was wondering, can you tell us a little bit about yourself as an author, and, and what's your connection to this topic? Yeah, uh, uh, I write a fair amount, but I tend to write on uh, policy matters, foreign policy, trade policy, work, and uh, this is my second book. I wrote a book on market entry strategies for business, so this is a first history book. It's a World War II history book that looks at U.S. Army in Europe, and this came about because that is where my father served as a infantry uh, private in World War II, uh, fighting from the Battle of the Bulge through the end of the war. So that's what spurred my interest and was the sort of the, 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 the initiative behind the book. So who was Carl Lavin and where was he from? Uh, Carl Lavin was a high school senior when World War II started. He was in Canton, Ohio. So it's a very typical situation. I mean, America's at peace. You know, everybody who went and fought that war was, you know, more or less a high school senior or just out of high school, or maybe they were, uh, by the time the war ended, they, maybe they might have been a high school freshman even by the time when Pearl Harbor was hit. But uh, he's 17 years old in 1941 and 1942. When he turns 18, he enlists, and he's sent first of a different training commands uh, in the U.S. and then to Britain as a staging area for combat, and then he goes in on uh, Christmas Day, 1944. He's a replacement a soldier for a casualty during the Battle of the Bulge, and he's put right to the front lines on uh, December 25, 1944, and he's in combat those final six months. And so what what unit did he serve in? Well, the combat is 84th, the Log Splitters, 84th Infantry Division. Uh, they're in the heat of the combat from the Battle of the Bulge, the Battle of the Rhine, Battle of the Roar. Uh, so there's a series of combat incidents, but the most punishing, if you will, the most, the bloodiest battle is the Battle of the Bulge, which lasts from essentially mid-December, December 16th or so through the end of January, about six weeks. It is the largest battle ever fought by the United States Army, about one million Americans uh, in this battle. And so can you maybe describe, you know, for our listeners who maybe are, uh, you know, just kind of a nutshell explanation of the battle and where Carl was, you know, in relation to the bulge, you know, around the, the village of Bastogne? Sure. This is, uh, this is Hitler's final offensive on the West, the Western Front. This is, uh, he takes every available troop that he's got and he puts it against uh, U.S. forces. And the U.S. has had a very good uh, fall, if you will, <clears throat> meaning the advance since D-Day across France has been relatively rapid and very successful. And the U.S. forces and allied forces have advanced essentially to the German border at this point. There's a big problem with that success, and that is that allied supply lines are really stretched. The harbors are not operational. They were mined and sabotaged by Hitler. Uh, so you're still repairing and reconstituting that, and you don't really have uh, good connectivity with your very front troops. Uh, so there's a little bit of fragility in the Allied system at that point, and that's when Hitler uh, decides to attack. And for the first 10 days or two weeks, he's doing reasonably well. He's got the advantage of surprise. He's able to concentrate his forces, and of course, the the aggressor always has the advantage of uh, choosing the terrain and choosing the moment. So he has all of those 
advantage is, and it takes uh, the U.S. and the Brits are there on the front as well, it takes a while to fully figure out what's going on and reassign troops. And unfortunately, it's done in the middle of winter. And unfortunately, it's done at the end of this very long supply chain. So it's a very, very brutal time. So Carl, just as one example, Carl Lavin goes into his company, rifle company, companies about 100 to 150 people. In 30 days, Carl's in the top seniority of the company, meaning over half of the company's uh, a, a casualty and they've been replaced. So Carl's in the, in the top 50% of seniority within 30 days of combat, because it's just a, a, a brutal time. In fact, I'll tell you one thing, Andrew, that I was talking, I was at the library of Congress going through archival material on this bit of combat. And I looking at the unit statistics, the, the, the army records say that the casualty rate for this company is over a hundred percent. And I remember I had to ask the archivist, how could, arithmetically, how could this be that you could have over 100% casualties? That looks almost like a, a math error or something that you can't do that. And the archivist said, no, what this means is uh, people are shot and replaced and their replacement is shot and that replacement is shot. So you have two, three, four casualties in one single billet, so to speak, right? So you can easily have something like 150% casualty in a unit. It just means every single person in that unit was killed statistically and 50% of the replacements was also killed. So you, you just had a very, very bloody time uh, at the front during that combat. Can you tell us a little bit about Carl's mindset before, during, and after his wartime experience? And, and how did Carl's home front life affect his life on the battlefront? Yeah, I think this was also uh, typical of where the United States was in 1940, 1941, which is to say uh, it's not internationally oriented. People are following what's going on in Europe. People are uh, you know, concerned about Hitler. I, I think very few Americans are positive about him. Most people, uh, you know, take your cue from Franklin Roosevelt, most people are sympathetic to Britain, sympathetic to France. Uh, but, but, but it's also viewed as not our war. And remember, the general war doesn't break out until September 1939, when Hitler invades Poland and Britain, France, both decide they have to declare war on Germany because they're, they're treaty allies of Poland. So it's not so reasonably late after Hitler seized power that he goes into formal war. And only then does I think American public opinion really start to shift. There's still, there's still a very strong uh, view in the United States that it's not America's war. And even though our sympathies are with the democracies, that there's no need for the U S to fight. So uh, so it's that that's the position going into the war. And remember, the U.S. is coming out of the Great Depression. People are much more focused on their own economic well-being and trying to get a job and trying to get their life on track. And the economy is picking up, but but slowly. And Carl, I think, is a very typical American uh, teenager at that time. He's playing uh, football on weekends and he's a poetry editor of the student newspaper and, uh, you know, I think enjoying uh, life as a, as a teen. Uh, and when Pearl Harbor uh, is attacked, like many Americans, he volunteers and he signs up and there's a lot of enthusiasm for that first year or two. In fact, I think I'd say as long as he's in peacetime training, he has a very uh, positive view about his mission, about the military, about the government, about what's going on. And uh, as you would expect, he's uh, you know very patriotic, very energetic about what he's doing. When combat starts, not surprisingly, a lot of this changes because combat is just horrific. So he's still very proud about the mission, still very supportive about what 
is going on, but there's enormous uh, concern just about the uh, bloodshed, the human cost. And when you see it up close, I think it becomes uh, a very dramatic set of incidents for him. And I, I can tell you from the book that when he first signs up in the military, he's discussed matters with his mom and dad in letters, correspondence that we have. And he's talking about maybe I should make the army a career. And he says, there's even a mechanism to take enlisted folks and allow them to go to West Point. Maybe I should do that. So he's he's very uh, interested in the army and, and finds it very appealing. When he gets through combat, you just don't see any of that. He's saying, you know what? I just want to get back home. I just, I've done my bit. I've done my part and it's time to go back home. And to your question, once he returns home and he's out of the military, he never really orients his life around veterans activities or remembering it. I think I think what he's saying very clearly at that point when he gets back in 1946 is that he wants to establish his life on his own terms and he doesn't want his life defined by this uh, terrible trauma of the war. Even though we're the good guys and we did what we had to do and we we fought because we had to fight, uh, that the, the, he wants to be able to start a family and get on with his life and not have a life defined by what happened in World War II. So I saw in the book that a quote from John Steinbeck, a, a quote that se- seemed to capture what you were trying to do with this book. Would you want to share that with our listeners and maybe explain its relationship to what you're trying to do with the book? Thank you, Andrew. This is from the preface of the book, and it is a quote by uh, John Steinbeck. And we know Steinbeck today is a famous novelist and Nobel laureate, but during World War II, he was a war correspondent, and he filed regular stories from the front. And here's what Steinbeck writes. There are really two wars, and they haven't much to do with each other. There's a war of maps and logistics, of campaigns, of ballistics, armies, divisions, and regiments, and that is General Marshall's war. Then there's the war of the homesick, weary, funny, violent, common men who wash their socks and their helmets, complain about the food, and lug themselves and their spirit through as dirty a business as the world has ever seen and do it with humor and dignity and courage. So this book is that second war. It's the war, it's the story of the GI, the foot soldier, their emotions, their motivations, their concerns, what they're proud of, what they're unhappy about, their connections with their family back home. And this book was spurred, Andrew. The initiative of this book was a few things that happened in American public life just about 10 years ago. But uh, Tom Hanks's movie came out, Saving Private Ryan, which similarly was sort of a story, a wartime story, but told from a foot soldier's point of view. And then Steven Spielberg uh, did a series on HBO called Band of Brothers from Stephen Ambrose's book of the same name. Very similar. It's, It's a story of just ordinary GIs, if you will, foot soldiers. These guys were paratroopers and what, how they behaved, what they did, good news, bad news, their day-to-day life. And it, I dawned on me, Andrew, as I saw those two uh, 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 movies in the TV show, as I saw those, that, well, gosh, my dad had done something similar. He'd fought in Europe. He'd been a foot soldier. He was a GI, just carried a rifle. Uh, so no, no famous heroics, but boy, it's a tough life uh, being a foot soldier. And I asked my dad to help me understand what he did. And I, I just got a tape recorder and interviewed him. I didn't even know what unit he'd served in. I didn't know when he, where he was trained. I didn't know where he enlisted. I didn't know who his commanding officer was. 
And uh, I had a good interview with them and ended up with about a 30-page monograph. And then I uh, could use conventional history sources and official government records to try to build that out a bit. But then what, what a bit of good fortune is we found in the furnace room a, a box of literally two to 300 uh, letters that my father had written at that time to his mother from uh, 1942 to 1946, discussing basic training, discussing the shipment to Europe, uh, going to the front. Uh, so those letters were very helpful in setting a tone and understanding how teenagers think and what they're trying to tell their parents uh, and the back and forth. We don't have the mother's letters to the son, but we have the son's letters to the mother's because they all ended up back in the United States. And his mother kept all of those letters and gave them back to him when he returned home. And he just threw them in a, in a box for the, in the furnace room. So that that became the backbone of the book. So at the end of the day, what do you hope readers take away from reading this book about your father? Well, look, I think the book works because because you're 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 looking at a specific moment in a history and a specific and the locomotive of the narrative is one individual, but it works because it's representative. The United States had six million people in a uniform in World War II. Uh, so what you're trying to do is to say this is this is when we talk about the greatest generation and what made them. This is how they had to perform. These are the threats they faced. This is how they dealt with these challenges. And this is the kind of people these individuals are. So I think you get a very good insight into the uh, the typical GI who was in combat in World War II and what their day-to-day life was like. And I think you, you take away that history of the soldier. There's, you know, Andrew, as, as Steinbeck tells us, there's sort of high politics. There's history of what is what is Eisenhower doing, and what is Churchill doing, and Franklin Roosevelt, and that's that's important history. Great men, great events, great decisions. That that is very important. But we also should, I think, always remember the man on the street, the teenager, the high school graduate who ends up carrying that rifle and has to do the the real dirty work of the war. And what's that person thinking about? And that's why we respect people like Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg, the the great storytellers that bring that home to us. And you can say, gosh, that might've been my father, my grandfather, my uncle, the guy next door, my dad's best friend. But these are all people, part of our world today. It's only one generation removed from us. So it's useful to remember that we are here today in part because of the sacrifices these people made some 70 years ago. My name is Andrew Howard, and you've been listening to Frank Lavin discuss his new book, Homefront to Battlefront, an Ohio teenager in World War II. Frank, thanks for joining us today. Andrew, thank you for having me on. All Ohio University Press and Swallow Press books are available in print and electronic editions and can be ordered from bookstores and online retailers. Please find us at ohioswallow.com. Thanks for listening and have a great day.